We are continuing through our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to John 18, verse 28, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, Over the last year or so, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and as of last week, we've sort of stepped into the final section of narrative, the last couple of chapters that John has written for us. And uh, we've seen that Jesus was arrested. Uh, His disciples at this point have either betrayed him or denied him or just fled. Uh, Last week, the text that we looked at uh, had Jesus on trial before Caiaphas, who's the uh, high priest over the nation of Israel, and his father-in-law, Annas. Uh, Interestingly enough, though John doesn't include many details from what we would call the Jewish trial, uh, like some of the other gospel writers do, it's clear that through that trial, uh, they come out without anything tangible to accuse Jesus of. Of all the things that are brought against him, everything kind of falls to the ground. The one thing they are able to pin him on uh, is the fact that he claims to be the Son of God. So with only that uh, accusation in hand, they are sending him now over to Pilate, who is the Roman governor, uh, in set in place over Jerusalem. And that's where the narrative picks up this morning. We are in John 18, verse 28. It says this, it says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Uh, by now it was early in the morning. They've gone through the night. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, uh, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, "Uh, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. 
They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we unpack this text this morning, I pray that we uh, would be able to see and taste and smell and sense uh, these moments that you went through uh, as you approached the cross and the resurrection that was to come. The Holy Spirit, would you uh, open our eyes to see clearly this morning? Uh, would we see your presence, your love, your grace? Uh, would we have eyes to see what it is that you chose to do and chose to accomplish for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The entire Gospel of John up to this point has been framed as a trial. The book opens with a claim that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the pre-existent one, the light that has shone into the darkness. And right off the bat, John the author says that John the Baptist came as the first witness to that reality. Uh, Jesus came as the truth, full of grace and truth, and both John the Baptist and John the author 
are now coming forward as witnesses to who Jesus is. So in the way this gospel account has been written, you have two witnesses who each speak twice in the narrative, witnessing to who Jesus is. And that would have been a significant uh, for establishing evidence in their paradigm. It's a little lost on us, but in a Jewish court of law, you need to establish something by, with two witnesses in order for it to be valid and acceptable evidence. Uh, and he's written his gospel in light of that. Uh, in addition to that, the entire first half of the gospel of John is known as the book of signs. And John, the author, has highlighted seven different signs. Jesus did uh, hundreds of things, perhaps thousands of things in his, uh, during his three years of ministry. But John, the author, has just handpicked seven of those signs that Jesus performed for the Jewish nation uh, almost as evidence as to who he is and what his kingdom was like. And that number seven, again, is significant in the culture that he's writing in. It signaled a fullness or completion, sufficiency. So John is saying, here's these two witnesses that are coming. They're each going to speak twice. Here's these seven signs. Seven is all you need. That's enough to establish that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he's done these things for you. Uh, but tragically, as uh, Jesus performs the seventh sign uh, in John's gospel, this uh, climactic sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, instead of being received uh, and certified by the Jewish nation, he's actually rejected. This is actually the moment when the Jewish leaders turn on him, they announce their verdict in the trial they've been holding in their mind and say, Jesus must die. It's better that one man die than our whole nation be threatened with instability. They have arrived at the conclusion that he is a false Messiah, that he is a threat to their power and authority and the stability of their nation. And from that moment on, from the raising of Lazarus forward, chapter 12 onward, it's already settled in their minds. They are going to kill Jesus one way or another. They just need the opportunity. Uh, finally, in the verses that we read last week with the help of Judas, Jesus is arrested by the Jewish authorities. He's brought before the high priest and the father-in-law of the high priest. And after struggling through their own trial, the Jewish national leaders have now sent him to stand before Pilate. And the reason they need Pilate's involvement is that Rome is the ruling power in Jerusalem. Uh, they are occupying that nation. And while they've given the Jewish leaders some of their own power and autonomy within that system, Rome reserved the exclusive right to execute people. So nobody else can do that but us. So if the Jewish leaders had want, wanted Jesus beaten, or imprisoned, or perhaps even exiled and thrown out of the nation, they probably could have done that on their own. But that's not what they want. The Jewish leaders want Jesus crucified. And the only way they can attain that is by getting Rome to sign off on the execution order. So they bring Jesus over to Pilate, but the problem is that Pilate doesn't care. He doesn't care about this. He doesn't want to get involved. He has his own problems to worry about. But they come and knock on his door early in the morning, and they say, look, we've brought you a criminal. 
And he says, okay, great. What has he done? And they start to get a little bit shifty, and they say, well, if, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. So clearly, you know, he's a criminal. And Pilate's saying, okay, what has he done? Uh, and eventually they explain to Pilate that this man is claiming to be king of the Jews. Uh, and so he uh, goes in and uh, goes to talk to Jesus privately. And, and he says, because by the time they get to that point, Jesus says, or Pilate says, okay, that's something I can actually try. That's something I can, that I can deal with. So he goes uh, to talk to Jesus, but their conversation that unfolds, this sort of trial that Pilate holds, uh, is beautiful and counterintuitive and confusing, and it's laced with irony. Uh, it doesn't go the way you would expect it to go. And the first thing that's very odd about this trial is that Jesus doesn't really answer any of Pilate's questions. Pilate comes in the way a judge or a prosecuting attorney would, depending on the system that you're in. And he asks them these direct questions. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't answer that question. It sounds like a yes or no thing. He doesn't answer it. Instead, he replies with a question that essentially says to Pilate, well, who's asking? Is it you who's interested in this, or is it the people who are interested in this? And, and then Pilate gets upset and responds and asks again a very direct question. What is it that you've done? Tell me what you're being accused of. Again, Jesus doesn't answer the question. Instead, he starts talking about the inbreaking kingdom of God and the nature of that kingdom. And Pilate says another direct question. So you are a king then if you have some type of kingdom. And again, Jesus sidesteps the question and says, I came into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Finally, Pilate responds with a final, almost rhetorical question. He says, truth? What is truth? And then neither of them answer that question, and he walks away which makes for a very odd conversation and a fascinating trial. Pilate is confused by the whole situation. He just wants this whole mess to go away. But like the Jewish leaders before him, he can't really find anything wrong with Jesus. So he goes out to the Jewish leaders and he announces, he says, I find no basis for, the, for a charge against him, meaning I believe this man is innocent. But the Jewish leaders are relentless. They're fuming. They want him to be crucified. Uh, they're refusing to back down, so they keep pushing. And, and Pilate realizes, okay, they're not just going to go away because of my verdict. And so what he does is he um, attempts to sort of get Jesus off the hook by giving him a beating instead of a crucifixion. So Pilate has him taken away and flogged, which is a severe. Uh, beating. And in fact, it was so severe that oftentimes um, people who were flogged would die from the flogging alone because of what's involved in that and the blood loss. Uh, but Pilate is hoping that this will be sufficient to satisfy the Jewish people. Uh, in fact, in Luke's account, Pilate repeatedly tells the crowds, he says, hey, why don't I punish Jesus and then I'll release him? 
multiple times he keeps suggesting, hey, why don't I just punish him and teach him a lesson and then, and then I'll release him. We can be done with this. He keeps pushing uh, that idea. He, 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 he might have done something to offend you, but he doesn't need to die. So let's just give him this beating. Uh, so he has Jesus flogged and then he, he brings him out again and he says, okay, I, I flogged him. Uh, that, that should be enough. I've punished him for your sake, basically just because you wanted him punished, just because you're so upset. I've done this to appease you, but now I'm releasing him because I find no basis for a charge against him. I'm declaring him innocent. But the leaders are relentless. Crucify him. Crucify him. They keep chanting. And Pilate says, you go crucify him. I find him innocent. I don't want to do this. And of course, the leaders know um, that they cannot do that, that they have no right to go and do that. But you see uh, the position that Pilate is in. Um, and, and so finally, because they're at this deadlock, the Jewish leaders essentially lay their cards on the table. They say, all right, Pilate, here's the deal. We have a law, and according to our law, he must die because he's claimed to be the Son of God. Like, this is it. This is the real reason that we brought him to you. This is what we're after. And in this moment, as they announce this, Pilate hasn't heard this yet in any form. And in this moment, the, the fear of God sort of falls on Pilate. He gets really nervous. He already thought that Jesus was innocent. He's already noticed that there's just something different about this man. He's curious. He's drawn in. Uh, he's been defending Jesus, which is really unusual for a Roman official who's probably crucified thousands of Jewish people in his time there. Uh, but instead, he's defending this man. And to make matters worse, uh, Matthew tells us in his account that Pilate's wife actually had a vivid dream or vision about Jesus and then sent word to her husband. This is what it says in Matthew's account. This is her words to her husband. She says, have nothing to do with that innocent man. I suffered a great deal today in a vision because of him. And, and now Pilate's really trembling. <laughs> He's thinking, wait, what? Like, what, what is this? What is happening right now? Uh, I think he's innocent. My wife's had this vision and sent word to me. There, there's something about this man that's just different. He's telling me about this kingdom that's not really of this world. And now the Jewish authorities are telling me that he claims to be the son of God. Pilate is afraid. And so I imagine he goes into Jesus again with, with a bit of fear and trembling and, and essentially says, who are you? Like, we need to get to the bottom of this. Who are you? Where do you come from? But Jesus doesn't answer the question. Despite that silence, we're told that from then on, Pilate continuously tried to set Jesus free. But as he's in the midst of doing this, trying over and over again, to release Jesus, uh, the Jewish leaders deliver kind of the knockout blow. Uh, they attack with a logic that ultimately undermines Pilate's resistance. And this is what they say. 
They say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. They're upping the stakes. This is a, a, a dirty tactic that they're using. But they've reframed what's happening in this morning. They're now saying to release Jesus is a rebellious act against Caesar because he's claiming to be some sort of king. And, and so this puts Pilate in a really difficult position because if he's seen as undermining Caesar, or releasing opposing uh, kings, political threats, then he will at the very least be removed from office, but likely he could even be executed. So now Pilate's career and perhaps even his life are on the line. But Pilate keeps trying to release him, even in the face of all that. And, And yet the harder he tries... It says, the louder they yell, until finally, we read in Matthew's account, it says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, or, or a riot, there was civil unrest, he, he, it was, I imagine it was so loud they couldn't even hear his voice anymore. And so symbolically, he takes water and he washes his hands in front of the crowd and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. He is your responsibility. And all the people answered with perhaps the most haunting line in this section of narrative. His blood is on us and our children. A stunning statement to make when you are murdering the Son of God. And finally... Pilate caves. He hands Jesus over to be crucified, and the deed is done. The gavel drops, the death sentence is given, and in this moment, as he's handed over, everyone thinks that they've won. The Jewish leaders have twisted Rome's arm and secured the death sentence that they desired. Their temple and their power are secured as a false Messiah is wiped off the map. They've won. Pilate, though full of inner turmoil, has maintained peace in Jerusalem and remained in office while removing a political threat. Even Satan believes that he's won. That he's successfully worked through human beings to destroy the Son of God. It looks as if everyone has won and Jesus has lost. But this entire account is laced with irony. Though Jesus stands on trial, in front of the people, in reality, it is the people who will stand on trial before Jesus at the end of the age. Though it appears Jesus lost and everyone else won, in the end, it is the reverse. 
everyone involved in this situation lost, and Jesus alone will stand triumphant. Pilate compromised his moral conscience. He handed the Son of God over to be crucified and gained very little in return. He was removed from office just a few years later. The Jewish people killed their own Messiah, the one on whom their hopes were set. And in a stunning renunciation of their heritage, they claimed, We have no king but Caesar. If you know the biblical storyline and God's intent for Israel, that is a stunning statement to make. They're renouncing everything that God has spoken to them over the centuries, who they are claiming that their allegiance lies with Rome, that the blood of this man was on their heads. They were responsible for it. But a few years later, Rome would march in and destroy their temple and their nation, wiping them off of the map. All their power was lost. And even as Satan looks on, Satisfied that the Son of God is being crucified and done away with, what he fails to realize is that in this moment, the sin of the world for which he has toiled over the millennia is being undone and done away with as Jesus dies on the cross. That all of his works and effects will start to crumble, to be destroyed, to be undermined by what is being accomplished there. Though he strikes the heel of this offspring of Eve, he does not realize his head will be crushed in the process. As the beauty and glory of God break out upon the world, conquering Satan, conquering the power of sin, conquering death itself. John says, a light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And while he came to that which was his own, to the children of Israel, and his own did not receive him, still to all those who did receive him. To those who believe in his name, to those who judge Jesus correctly for who he is, he gives the right to become children of God. Not children born biologically, but children reborn in the power of the Spirit. John sums up his account this way. He says, these things or my entire gospel account was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the invitation that Jesus offers. We live in a culture of Pontius Pilate's, of people who care more about their own lives, their own image, 
and the opinion of others than they do about truth. People who may feel drawn to Jesus or curious about him from time to time, but who cannot acknowledge him publicly because the cost is too high. Better to put on a sham trial so we can culturally throw Jesus out the window and attempt to justify our decision. Better to bow to the angry sentiment of the loud and opinionated resistance than to stand up and speak what is true. We live in a culture that longs for compromise, that longs for neutrality, a culture that attempts to publicly wash its hands of the entire thing and remain neutral as if that were possible. A people who, like Pilate, approach Jesus and ask, Truth? What is truth? Is there such a thing? Isn't it all relative? Does it even matter? But as the curtain closes, and the gavel falls, and the verdict is delivered, as Jew and Gentile unite together in rejecting the Son of God in favor of lesser things, Pilate's question still stands unanswered, hanging in the air for all time, begging a response from every human being. Truth? What is truth? A question with eternal consequence. A question each of us must answer for ourselves. Truth. What is truth? Before the trial and the flogging, before his arrest in the garden, before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The, the culture had all sorts of competing and confusing opinions about who Jesus was. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for going willingly to your death, Lord. We thank you that you are in a place of safety with your disciples doing really good work that the Father had given you to do, and yet it says that you turned and, and you set your face 
like a flint toward Jerusalem. You just had this determination in your eyes. You said, this is the hour. The hour has come. I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be handed over to the ungodly. I will be beaten, mocked, tortured, and crucified. But you went anyways, Lord. None of that could deter you from what you had come to do. From rescuing us, from rescuing the world. Out from under the tyranny of the serpent and the absurdity of the the power of sin that had gripped us generation after generation after generation. Lord, we see you here standing before Pilate, before a man who had the power to set you free or the power to crucify you, and you were not moved. You were there in the peace and the grounding and the love of the Father, and you spoke the truth. And Lord, as we consider Pilate, as we consider the forces that were at play that fateful morning, Lord, we see that neutrality is not an option. That no matter how hard someone might try, we can never truly just wash our hands and walk away. Each of us must answer that question, truth, what is truth? What about you? Who do you say I am? Lord, if there's anyone here gathered this morning that has never acknowledged you as Lord, that has never placed their hope and their faith and their identity in in your cross and in your resurrection, I pray they would find the freedom and the courage to do that this morning. They would surrender to you. They would answer that question the way that that Peter did and the power of the Spirit that day in Caesarea Philippi that just came spilling out of him. Lord, you, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Lord, for those of us who have already made that great confession, who have already placed our hearts and our lives and our past and our future into your hands. Lord, I pray that we would find that same peace that Jesus found. That you would form us and shape us into a people who who don't chase after power or compromise or shrink back in self-interest, Lord. But in the power of the Spirit, would, would you show us how to follow you, how to stand beside you, how to count the cost and follow after you despite the forces that oppose us. Lord, there are forces within that discourage and distract and and pull us to the left and to the right. And there are forces around us, Lord, 
that push and pull and oppose. And, and sometimes we find ourselves like Pilate with really good intentions, but buried under competing interests and in, in the fears that this world presses on our hearts. Lord, in the power of your spirit, would our story be different? Would we be able to stand before the opposing forces of the world and say, not only do I find this man innocent, not only do I believe he's the son of God, but, but I'm not going to back down. I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to change. My integrity is not for sale. I will not be pushed. I will not be pulled. I will not be bargained with. Lord, may we find ourselves there in the midst of your grace and your love and your truth. The opening of John's gospel says, oh, the law came through Moses. It's, it had its day. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. May it come through us, Lord. Your body. May it flow out into the brokenness of this city. In Jesus' name.